Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today we'll hear from Jerusalem about news of a fresh ceasefire between Israelis and Palestinians in Gaza. But we begin in Scotland, where First Minister Alex Salmond and former British Chancellor of the Exchequer, Alistair Darling, have met in the second televised debate of the independence referendum campaign. Mr Salmond, who leads the campaign for independence, performed badly in the first debate. And still trailing in the polls with three weeks to go before voting day, the Yes campaign needed a game-changer. Our London editor, Mark Hennessy, was at the debate in Glasgow, and he joins me now. Mark, was it a game-changer? No, I don't think it was necessarily the game changer. Nevertheless, the yes side have come out of the debate with a spring in their step. There's no doubt that Alex Salmon did extremely well. Uh, however, all of the early polling is suggesting that whilst people thought that Salmon won and won by a considerable margin, it isn't necessarily changing the views that they had before the debate began. And people who are concerned about currency, welfare, pensions, etc., remain to be concerned. And people People who feel that an independent Scotland offers the hope of a new dawn are have been validated in their opinions. The crucial issue is this middle ground opinion who are termed as undecided, which is perhaps overly simplistic in terms of describing them because those people in many cases have inclinations already to go either left or right for yes or no. But they are fearful or they feel that their opinions need greater validation. They're, they need a push coming from somewhere. And in some ways, that will perhaps be given just by time. It's striking talking to people here who are only now really beginning to focus on the issues uh, three to four weeks out from the campaign, who have largely ignored much of what's gone on up to now. They they come into it with a certain hinterland, either because of their background or uh, where the, the kind of job they have or the income they have. So they, they, they've presets. But nevertheless, they haven't yet really focused on the issue. And that crucial middle ground opinion will probably have drifted away quite early in the debate last night because of the rather intemperate nature of much of it. Now, it was indeed pretty intemperate. And Alex Salmond himself was much more aggressive this time than he was in the first debate. Did that work for him? Well, it worked for him to the extent that it is the salmon that people have known. He, it, Although it does entirely contradict what he did in the first debate and his defense of his poor performance in the first debate, because you will remember at that point he was talking about there was a need to be emollient, that there was a need to attempt to persuade people. You didn't go in shouting and roaring. You went in and talked with a gentle voice so that we could all reason together. Now, he left that playbook outside the door of the Kelvin Grove uh, art gallery last night and he went for Darling and it was quite striking on a number of issues where Darling had scored very successfully on in the first debate particularly on currency he wasn't able to come back to the table and play that hand again it was quite striking that not only did Salmond uh, react with a, a degree of derision but an audience that had been very carefully chosen by the, uh, the BBC to reflect public opinion as it is believed to exist at this moment in time equally reacted badly instinctively to uh, his demands for a plan B. And so the same tactic that worked so well for Darling this time round met with absolutely no response on this particular occasion. And that is largely because a quite extraordinary number of Scots are absolutely convinced on relatively poor evidence that a very that the main political parties in London and the wider 
sense of public opinion in England will accept a currency union with Scotland if they decide to vote yes on September the 18th, despite the fact that, as I say, Labour, the Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives have ruled it out. In fact, some of them are talking about making it uh, an election pledge. Uh, And equally, there is uh, the issue of the legislation that would be required to be passed in the House of Commons after Scotland becomes independent and after there is a deal on separation on the minutiae of the the transfer of assets and everything else, that will have to go before the House of Commons. And given the rather febrile nature of that particular building uh, at the moment, ministers can say what they like, but putting legislation like that on the table, on the floor of the House of Commons, I wouldn't be putting money on it getting passed. No, but on the on the currency question, Alex Salmond also seemed to change his approach in that the, during the first debate, he just refused to talk about the other options, the plan B or whatever. This time he actually said, uh, you know, I haven't just got one plan B, I've got three of yeah. them. And, th- and that seems to be a new a new tactic. It is a new tactic, but it's a a new tactic that has followed on foot of their realization that currency is not striking home as the big bad fear that the uh, Better Together and uh, No Side believed it to be. When the issue of currency was raised, first of all, Better Together were absolutely convinced that it was the killer blow, that if you raise fears in Scott's mind about the currency that they will have in their pocket after September the 18th, that it was it was game over. Now, clearly, it is it, that has absolutely worked with a very significant percentage, although a noble percentage, of the Scottish population. But this key middle ground who are still wavering in terms of where they're going. They appear to be making their decisions about how they will cast their vote on issues other than currency. It hasn't proven to be the killer blow. And therefore, because of that, the yes side believe that they have a greater sense of freedom about the options that they can put forward than they were able to do uh, three weeks ago because there is no way in the first debate that Salmon would have raised the prospect of an independent Scottish currency. He did it last night with a degree of casualness, believing that it wasn't going to generate generate a response from the public at large, and that is not accidental. That um, sentence was carefully tested beforehand. They they believe and they're convinced that Scots are not as afraid of uh, change on this issue as the Better Together campaign uh, believes. Now, Alistair Darling had another economic argument against independence, and that was about the revenue coming from North Sea oil. What is this argument all about? Well, there have long been varying forecasts about how much um, oil there is in the North Sea. Back in the 70s, it was uh, said that it would last until 1999. And then uh, the British governments have systematically overestimated the amount of oil that has been there. Uh, we had the Wood Review report that was done last year. Now, Ian Wood is probably the most respected person in oil exploration in Scotland. He wrote a report which called for tax changes, regulatory changes, so that they could maximise the production that would come in the coming decades from the North Sea. But in that report, there was a figure given of a, 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 an expected reserve of $24 billion. Uh, a few days ago, he came out and he said exactly the opposite. He said that the figures were somewhere in the region of 15 to 16 billion. And he was rounded on 
by not only by Yes Scotland, which you would expect, but Oil and Gas UK, who uh, the Irish Times spoke to uh, some time ago, and they uh, talked then about a figure of 24 billion. And in fact, privately, many people in that organisation believe the reserves could be even higher. People like Alex Kemp, who would be the most uh, respected oil academic in Scotland, based in Aberdeen, he too rubbished uh, the figures. So you had the situation where, as you know, credibility is a very precious flower. It doesn't suffer a cold frost. And Wood came in, intervened in the campaign, and that particular tactic has not worked. And Alistair Darling tried to hammer it home last night. And the audience, again, the very mention of the word Ian Wood uh, uh, provoked a response from the public at large. The view that's taken by most middle ground Scots when they think about Scotland is that they've no way of knowing what in the name of God is in the North Sea. So therefore, they don't particularly believe anybody's predictions. Now, the uh, Yes campaign has long described the No campaign as Project Fear, accusing them of scaremongering about the currency and the economy. But during this debate, Alex Salmond had his own project fear about the National Health Service. That's a very striking one because that that's the subject of the National Health Service barely figured in the white paper that the Scottish government produced last year. And it was mentioned only once by Alex Salmond in the first TV debate. And yes, now, in the week since, the SNP and Yes Scotland have been raising very, very dark fears about the future of the National Health Service. And those fears have been striking home with the Scottish population. The argument is that in England... Uh, services are being contracted by the NHS to private health companies. And uh, Salmond is arguing that with this uh, contracting out privatisation, as he's calling it, that's inevitably going to impact upon budgets on the NHS in England and will ipso facto impact on budgets in Scotland, despite the fact that the National Health Service is run in Scotland by the Scottish Parliament and by the Scottish Government and the Scottish Government has never followed the contracting out route that has uh, found such favour in England. So he's on, in many ways, on very weak ground. But he has hammered home this point, and it is striking how concerned Better Together have become about it, because it is coming back again and again and again on the canvas, that even if people don't know exactly what the nature of the scare is, the scare is frightening them. And that, those warnings, that, uh, that Mr. Salmon's warnings about the NHS, they did seem, as you say, to go down very well with the audience in Glasgow. And the Yes campaign seems to be focusing a lot of its efforts right now on Western Scotland and the housing estates in and around Glasgow. Why is that? Well, those areas traditionally would have perhaps a 30% uh, turnout in elections. They have, they're part of what's known in Scotland as the missing million, uh, the one million people who have literally disappeared off the electoral roll over the last uh, 30 years. Now, some of those people disappeared because of the poll tax in the early 80s uh, when Thatcher um, tried to introduce it in Scotland uh, before the attempt was made in, in Britain and people literally um, uh, removed their names from the register. Now, they, they, the Yes Scotland has put in a very major campaign to uh, of voter registration. Radical Independence, which is a group of much more left-wing uh, organisations, has put in an even bigger uh, effort in, in places like that. They're known as uh, the schemes, and not just in West, in West Scotland, but, but elsewhere. 
you know, I spent a weekend in, in Eastern House recently. If there's an 80% uh, turnout to be found in places like that, then frankly, I'm a Dutchman. I didn't see uh, evidence of that. But the issue is not whether they could reach the, the, the top uh, target that is being talked about, but whether they could add 20 points onto uh, what might be the outcome uh, in, an, in the Westminster elections or in the Holyrood elections. And if they were to get that, and if they were to get that in enough of the schemes, it could make a difference. Uh, this week, we reported on the situation in Dundee, for instance, which is a very um, uh, strongly Labour town, uh, as was now controlled by the SNP, a very socialist town in its history, and a town that once had the, the largest amount of local authority housing outside of Krakow, as the local phrase always put it. Now, we found people there who, for the European Parliament elections, in May, had gone to their local polling station to double-check that their name was on the register to make sure that they were able to vote in the independence referendum, who then walked out the door of the polling station without voting for the European Parliament election. But they are, and those are yes voters? No, they're, 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 these, these people are, uh, are are absolutely yes voters. They Even Labour privately are suggesting that up to 70% of the vote in Dundee could be, um, uh, will be for, for yes. Now, that in no way means that you can take what the situation in Dundee and replicate it all across Scotland. You can't. There's a very particular history in places like Dundee. But and, but there, uh, what there is not in Dundee, which is striking, is evidence of a mass increase in new voter registration. What's happening is that people who are already on the voting record register are voting yes, rather than there being uh, another 10 or 20,000 people who haven't been around before. So we're going to have to wait and see over the next few weeks whether the voter registration campaign has worked in the way that people think it, it should have done and whether they will come out uh, to vote uh, on polling day. The other thing to bear in mind about the TV debate from last night is that in many ways it was an eve of poll debate for at least one in six Scots because postal bo- uh, ballots uh, will begin to arrive on people's doorsteps uh, today and tomorrow for about 750,000 people. So many of those people will be putting their cross within 24 hours of having watched uh, Darling and Salmon. So therefore, that memory will be much stronger in their mind than uh, for those people who will have to wait until September the 18th to cast their ballot. And I suppose, Mark, this is the uh, the, the central question about how uh, this, uh, this campaign and how this referendum is going to go. The polls have, from the very, very beginning, shown a consistent uh, lead for the no side. It's been, uh, there's never been a poll that has shown the yes side ahead. But are there factors like the ones that you're describing which are capable of pushing the yes side over the top? Yes, there are. I mean, we, we've had a, the experience in 2011 where the SNP beat Labour, for instance, and none of the polls gave them uh, a prayer of doing it. Now, they were particularly helped in that occasion by an abysmal uh, Labour campaign led by Ian Gray. And as someone said to me in the last couple of weeks, you only get that lucky once in your life to be able to fight somebody like Ian Gray. So this is not 2011, even though it is a residual memory for, for many of them. Uh, what is What makes it very difficult uh, to gauge opinion here in some ways. It is like trying to pick up uh, uh, smoke with a fork in this, because the yes people are 
much more vocal. It is much easier to get a yes person to tell you on the street or anywhere else that they intend to vote yes. People who are voting no are much more silent, but they are there. They're there, according to the polls, they're there in the majority. You just don't see as much of them. And that makes it very difficult to gauge anything that you hear on TV, watch on radio, uh, or any or in any other forum. Uh, public meetings, for instance, are again not the guide that you might expect because an awful lot of the attendants are people who go there for the validation of their own opinion, and they're not necess- they're not despite all the claims that people are making about their de- de- desire for new information. Frequently, what I'm finding is that people wish to see their biases validated rather than challenged. Mark Hennessy in Glasgow, thank you. After seven weeks of bombardment and rocket fire interrupted by two ceasefires, the conflict in Gaza continued to claim lives this week, most of them inside the Palestinian enclave, but some in Israel too. But following diplomatic activity involving Egypt and other Arab states, the United States, the European Union and the United Nations, there appears to be agreement tonight between Israel and the Palestinian factions about a new ceasefire. I'm joined now from Jerusalem by our correspondent Mark Weiss and from Nicosia by the Irish Times Middle East analyst Michael Jansen. Michael Jansen, what do we know about this new ceasefire? Well, the new ceasefire is due to begin in a couple of hours. Um, And it has just been announced officially by Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas from Ramallah. It is supposed to be an indefinite truce which involves also the opening of the Egypt-Gaza border to Gazans seeking to enter and leave the Strip, and also the opening of Israeli-controlled border crossings to allow in humanitarian supplies and construction materials. Israel uh, would also expand fishing limits for Gaza's small fleet from 3 to 12 nautical miles from shore over um, several months. Also, Israel would cut down the size of the buffer zone, which runs around Gaza, inside Gaza's territory, from, well, whichever, it depends on which area it is, from 1.5 kilometers, 700 meters to 300 meters. And uh, there would be... uh, monitoring of what goes and comes into Gaza. Um, what, Michael, now, can you tell me, what, what is the fundamental difference between this deal, which is acceptable now to the Palestinian factions, and the original ceasefire offer which uh, Egypt brokered, which didn't involve negotiations with Hamas? Well, this deal um, is important because... It does refer back to the 2012 arrangement, which was made between Israel and um, the Palestinians, which Israel actually did not um, uh, carry out. It did not implement it, although the truce stuck off and on for most of the time. Um, Now, the question is that Egypt has got other people on board this deal the European Union, the United States, and other powers in the region, Jordan and the Arabs. Um, All of these uh, countries were mentioned by President Abbas in his address, uh, which was televised this evening, which is still ongoing. So the question is, 
whether this deal will be implemented. Um, the Egyptians have said that they have Saudi guarantees on some aspects of the deal, and hopefully they will have wider guarantees from the major powers, uh, Europe and the United States, also on implementation. And Michael, what does this mean for the governance of Gaza and for this Palestinian unity or consensus government? Well, one of the things uh, President Abbas said is that the new uh, consensus government will be taking over in Gaza. And also the Palestinian presidential guard will assume control of the Rafah crossing and uh, presumably also of the Palestinian side of the Arab crossing between Israel and Gaza. And um, eventually the Palestinian presidential guard or other Palestinian authority security agents will be on the, put on the border of Gaza to ensure that there won't be any further uh, attacks from Gaza into Israel. Uh, this will be a, a major step for the Palestinian Authority, whether it can meet the demands of the, such a task is, is uncertain. Hamas has agreed to the handover to the Palestinian Authority of the governance of Gaza. And formally, uh, the Hamas leadership has stepped down, although they still remain in control. And they remain in control because the Palestinian Authority cannot deploy its people in Gaza at the present time because of the conflict. And can I ask you, Michael, why did Hamas agree to uh, step down? They agreed to the uh, Palestinian consensus government, and it was established in, in June. And um, many Palestinians think that because Hamas agreed to this and also to reconciliation with the Palestinian Authority, Israel wanted to use this conflict to break the connection between the two. And one of the things that President Abbas has mentioned now in his speech is that reconciliation will go forward and that the two sides are closer than ever before. Uh, Mark Weiss, can I ask you in Jerusalem, what are the Israeli authorities saying about this deal tonight? Israel has uh, agreed to this deal. Uh, there was no vote taken in the uh, security cabinet. The prime minister's officials merely informed the other ministers in the security cabinet. Um, the rationale behind this was that uh, Israel, uh, the, the security cabinet, has already agreed in principle to this agreement. The tragedy of this whole uh, affair is that what has been agreed to tonight is essentially... Uh, exactly the same of what was on the table two weeks into the conflict that was um, uh, the Egyptian-mediated uh, agreement then that was accepted by Israel but rejected by Hamas uh, before the Israeli ground offensive. Um, the uh, Hamas leadership at the time believed that if they could continue the fighting, they would gain more concessions from uh, the Egyptians. That has not happened. All the other Hamas demands uh, including um, opening of the uh, airport and seaport, will be discussed in Cairo in a month's time uh, in proximity talks with Israel, if the truce holds. Um, but there's certainly no agreement by either the Egyptians or Israel towards movement on these issues. And it's, in my opinion, it's unlikely that there will be significant movement. 
as long as Hamas rejects uh, the Israeli demand for demilitarization of the Gaza Strip. So um, the vast majority of fatalities in Gaza could have been avoided if this agreement had been reached two weeks into the conflict. Um, already, uh, one of the Israeli security, a member of the security cabinet, says he opposes this agreement because um, it does not give Israel the right to intervene mil militarily if Hamas resumes uh, construction of uh, attack tunnels under the border or uh, rocket production. However, uh, um, as I said, no vote is taking place, so Israel formally has accepted the, the agreement. And Mark, there, is, there have been signs over the past few days that, uh, that there's some war weariness among the Israeli public. There have been some new opinion polls. What do they say? Yes, the latest um, public opinion poll in Israel shows that only 38% um, of the uh, population now um, are satisfied, claim they are satisfied with Prime Minister Netanyahu's performance during the Gaza war. This compares with 82% um, of Israelis who uh, overwhelmingly backed the government uh, earlier on in the campaign. The support for uh, the government's handling of the conflict has steadily eroded over the last few weeks when it became clear uh, that uh, despite um, Israel's claim that Hamas has been beaten heavily uh, and, and suffered, that we were in, uh, now in a war of attrition, something that Israel always wanted to avoid. And it uh, should be noted that uh, this ceasefire agreement came on the 50th day of Operation uh, Protective Edge, a very long and protracted and costly uh, conflict as far as the Israeli public is concerned. And do you think, Mark, that Israel was surprised by how resilient the Hamas fighters were in Gaza? I think so, um, although um, it's been clear for a couple of weeks now that uh, significant differences have emerged between um, the Hamas elements in Gaza, both the military and uh, the political wing, and the leadership abroad, particularly uh, Khaled Mashal, to such an extent um, that um, basically the ceasefire was agreed to tonight after the Hamas uh, leadership in Gaza basically made a fait accompli for uh, Khaled Mashal, saying that uh, they were very close to agreement, and uh, Khaled Mashal basically had to agree to the Hamas, um, uh, Hamas Gaza demands that if the time had come now for a ceasefire, enough suffering had taken place, and he could no longer sit in Qatar uh, and, and order that the conflicts continue. And Mark, one thing does appear to have changed where the Israeli approach is concerned. If you know, a couple of months ago, Israel were, didn't recognise uh, uh, the new Palestinian unity government; it felt it was illegitimate because Hamas were involved in it. Now. Essentially, they are acknowledging that this is the government uh, that they're going to have to deal with, both in the West Bank and in Gaza. It's very early, I would say, to make um, to, to, to um, make these judgments of how it will play out. Um, it's premature. We'll have to see first of all if the ceasefire um, holds, and then indeed what will be the role for uh, the Palestinian security, the Palestinian Authority. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas's security forces in enforcing the deal on the ground in Gaza, how much will Hamas agree to yield to him? But generally, it's, I think it's fair to say 
that there is, has been a shift in the Israeli attitude. Um, and it's fair to say, I think, that uh, President Abbas is now seen more of part of the solution uh, as opposed to part of the problem. Michael Jensen, uh, you heard Mark saying there that uh, essentially this deal is so similar to what was available some weeks ago that actually all uh, of the deaths that happened after perhaps the first 200 really uh, can be blamed on Hamas. And uh, and do you think that the people in Palestine will, or the Palestinian people will view this in the same way? I don't think so. Um, one of the mistakes that the Egyptians made with the first ceasefire offer, which was turned down, was that they didn't consult Hamas. They only consulted Israel. So... Uh, because they didn't consult Hamas, Hamas turned it down. And Hamas also turned it down because the question of lifting the siege and blockade of Gaza and um, allowing uh, supplies into Gaza by Israel uh, was put in as a secondary measure. It is now in a primary position in the ceasefire. And... Um, one of the things the Egyptians have had to learn is that they had to deal with Hamas, even though they are not uh, on good terms with Hamas because of its connection with the Muslim Brotherhood, because Hamas is, after all, an offshoot of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood. And Hamas has made some mistakes in dealing with Egypt um, by backing the Brotherhood and also, according to some sources, backing some of these extremist factions in Sinai, which has angered the Egyptians. But Egypt has had to deal with Hamas now. Uh, and Hamas was calling the shots, along with Islamic Jihad, in this negotiation on the Palestinian side. The Palestinian Authority had very little to say about what was going to happen. So, um, as I said, Egypt had to deal with Hamas and has now learned that it must deal with it further. Uh, what now, Michael, in Gaza? There's been so much destruction, so many people displaced from their homes, as well as uh, 2,000, more than 2,000 people killed. What is the task facing the people of Gaza now? Well, the people of Gaza have to uh, be given the opportunity to recover and to rebuild and they need money. One of the things President Abbas also mentioned in his speech was that the United Nations had to provide the aid in terms of humanitarian supplies to keep the people going and also in terms of uh, construction material to allow them to rebuild uh, so that they can reclaim their lives as much as possible. Uh, the people of Gaza will also need a great deal of help in overcoming the trauma of what has happened because many families have lost uh, members. Um, apparently 80 uh, families have been eliminated altogether um, and they have to uh, rebuild homes, they have to rebuild everything including the electricity plant, the sewage plant, the water pur purification plant, the roads, uh, the ministries which have been destroyed. Uh, even though they are not Hamas ministries, they had Hamas officials and Hamas administrators sitting in them for some time, but they weren't Hamas ministries. They were Palestinian ministries. 
and the people who are going to go to Gaza from Ramallah as part of the new government of Gaza will have to deal with a situation where they don't have premises from which they can operate. So the situation in Gaza is pretty desperate, and there will have to be not only massive aid, but immediate aid. And uh, the Palestinians who live there, and also the Palestinians who live in the West Bank, will have to focus on this rather than on uh, who is responsible and who should be punished and all these other issues until at least the rebuilding effort begins. Eventually, Hamas will have to pay a price for this massive destruction. But at the moment, Palestinians in Gaza blame Israel rather than Hamas. Michael Jansen in Nicosia and Mark Weiss in Jerusalem, thank you. And finally, at the Irish Times, we'd like to find out more about you, our podcast audience, how you access our shows, and what improvements you'd like to see. This week, we're running an online survey for our listeners. Everyone who completes the survey has a chance to win a prize of a Samsung Galaxy Tab 3. If you'd like to take part, please go to irishtimes.com forward slash podcast survey. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find out more about all our stories on irishtimes.com. And you can contact us at worldview at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Gary White, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye.